Welcome to the Rev Engine Podcast, where we help B2B CEOs and revenue leaders get clarity on how to align sales and marketing, build a high-performing revenue engine, and accelerate revenue growth for their organizations. I'm your host, Jeff Davis, author of award-winning book, Create Togetherness, and founder of Rev Engine. Let's jump into the show. Hey, everybody, it is Jeff Davis with another episode of the Rev Engine podcast, where we help B2B CEOs and revenue leaders align sales and marketing, transform the revenue engine, and accelerate revenue growth. I'm excited to have our guest on today, John Barrows. We've known each other for quite some time. We actually recently ran into each other in San Francisco at a conference. So we were catching up. I said, I got to get you on the podcast. I got to hear what you're, what you're up to and, and get your perspective. So let me share a little bit about him before he kind of tells the story, because he has such uh, a great background. So he's actually the CEO of Sell Better by JB Sales, uh, which is an organization focused on elevating the people and profession of sales through training, content, and events. Uh, they train some of the world's fastest growing sales teams like Salesforce.com. We all know who they are. Zoom, LinkedIn, while supporting a thriving community of over 5,000 individual sellers. Uh, John's goal is to change the negative perception, love this, of sales and help sales professionals achieve success by doing it the right way because he believes that when sales is done right, it is one of the greatest professions in the world. But when done wrong, it's one of the first. He also is the author of one of Amazon's best-selling children's book, the title of which is I Want to Be in Sales When I Grow Up, that he actually wrote with his daughter, which is super cool. So it attests meant, whatever that word is, to his commitment to actually elevating the sales profession and helping sellers sell better. So with all that said, John, I want to give you some space and time to tell people a little bit about yourself if they don't know you, and then we'll jump into the conversation. Great to see you out there in San Francisco too. It was a, it was a nice little book signing. I uh-huh. was like, I was felt like a slow a celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> you know, every once in a while you want to feel a little good about yourself. Right? Yeah, you need that, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, my background, it yeah, to I'll try to keep it brief here. You know, grew up in Boston, went down to school at U Maryland, drank my way through four years of college, got my degree in marketing because I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Fell into sales kind of like everybody else because there was no sales degrees back then. Got into sales with DeWalt Power Tools, driving around giving away tools to construction workers, which was pretty fun. And then I sold for Xerox. That's where I got my real sales education, right? I'm selling copiers to the government, by the way. So took my lumps there and then joined a, a startup with a friend of mine. Uh, I was a fourth employee and I ran sales and marketing for an IT services company. We were self-funded here in Boston and I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I was 23. So I was taking all the trainings, the Sandlers, the Miller Hymans, the Taz, Spin, all of it. And I came across this group called Basho. It was a training I really, really liked because it was super tactical. So fast forward, used Basho to help grow Thrive Up. We were the fastest growing company in Massachusetts for a few years in a row. Uh, sold it off to Staples after seven years. We got up to about 85 employees and about 10 million in revenues, sold it to Staples. And then I spent about a year going through that integration. Come to find out, apparently I'm not a corporate guy. I don't have much of a filter and I really don't like playing politics. So after a while, little Staples uh, offered me another position, which is a nice way of firing me. And I was looking for a job and Basho came knocking and said, John, you want to be a trainer? And I was like, no. And they're like, why not? I'm like, I don't like trainers. Uh, and they were like, well, what? And it was the reason was because most sales trainers I had come across up to that point in my career were either failed sales professionals or professional presenters. And I didn't want to be that, right? And, and so they said, don't worry, you have to use these techniques to sell so you can train so you can get paid. I was like, all right, I like the whole practice what you preach thing, right? 
So I joined them, took on some bigger accounts, brought on some bigger ones. And make a very long story short, they screwed it up and I took it over. So about 10 years ago, I went off on my own with JB Sales and uh, took all my clients. And, and now I got a group of 18 incredible people I'm working with and doing some fun stuff. We do professional services for those companies you talked about, Salesforce, LinkedIn, Box, Dropbox, all those, all those companies. And then we got a whole membership side of the house where we give away a ton of free content and do a daily show and everything else. So fun time these days. Yeah. And you, what you are offering is needed more than ever, I feel, because B2B selling has become more complex than ever. Talk about the fact, and, and you alluded to about there, there was not a professional selling degree or program to go to. And I think one of the reasons that you're seeing a lot of them pop up is because this is not just about, you know, taking a bag around and, and selling stuff anymore, right? Like it's really complicated. There's a lot more stakeholders, you know, technology is completely different. There's this diffusion of information where, you know, sellers are coming, I'm sorry, buyers are coming to the table with a ton more information than before. So, you know, excuse my language, you can't kind of BS yourself through a conversation. So what I think you're doing is really important. And I did not know you had a background in marketing. I'm all about cross-functional competencies. So you checked two boxes that I didn't know you did. So maybe serendipitously, I got you on the show because you came from a marketing background. So let's talk about one of my favorite topics, which is the revenue model. I, you know, there was a reason that this show is called the Rev Engine, right? I just first and foremost think that, you know, the revenue engine, we need to have a more holistic conversation across all functions because we are in a, a day and time where sales can't do it alone, marketing can't do it alone, sales success can't do it alone. We have to work together. So what are the things you've seen that are problematic for most organizations when it comes to their rev revenue model or rev engine, as I call it? Uh, you like how long you got? Look. I'll sum it up with this. I think everybody's stuck in it. Not everybody. I think a, a large portion of companies are stuck in a model of what they think they're supposed to do. And this, I'll give you an example, like this predictable revenue model. You know, Salesforce kind of defined it, if you will, back in the early 2000s. And it was the whole segmentation of roles. And that was great for us as organizations to scale. Because, you know, you, you take a young kid out of school, you pay him not so much, you, you know, let them take inbound leads and then you promote them to do outbound cold calling. And then you put those kids into a, you know, full cycle sales reps and, and go from there. And that's fine. That, that's actually really good for growth, hyper growth, because you can build your own sales org, basically. But that is about as far away from customer centric as it gets. Right. I mean, what customer wants to be handed off three, four five times before they actually talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about. Right. The, as far as what's broken, well, the handoffs, if the handoffs between all those roles were smooth and, and structured, for instance, like if it was, if it was defined that when an SDR gets a, you know, qualifies up to a certain point and then flips it over an AE, there was a smooth transition there. And then the AE had those conversations. And then when they flipped, brought in an, uh, an SE, the SE would actually know what they were, you know, there to talk about as, part, as opposed to requalifying again and having to do their job. And then if they close, then there was a smooth transition to customer success and expectations were very clear throughout all that, then we wouldn't have a problem. But there's breaking points at almost every single level. And so by the time we get a client, if we get a client, when we flip it over to customer success, 
they basically have to requalify why the client bought in the first place. Now they're you know relegated down to the person who probably didn't buy it, by the way. The, the champion who bought it is just going to hand it over to some kind of somebody to implement it. So they a lot of times don't even know what they got or what they're supposed to do or why they bought it. They're just doing the implementation. And so therefore adoption doesn't happen. Therefore, you know, the, the client doesn't get the whole value out of the thing that they should. And so therefore renewals suck, right? So I think it's just the disjointed nature of the end-to-end -end process that we have from a sales standpoint. We got to start looking at more from the customer standpoint about what's that experience look like. Customers don't go through linear sales models, even as much as we like to think they do. And as many of our sales stages that there are in CRM, it's just they, that's not how they buy anymore. They come in and out whenever they want. They, they want information. They want value at almost every single interaction. And if they don't get it, they're going to, they have way too many options right now that if we miss, they're going to go find something else. And so communication, alignment, you know, transition, all those things are what I think see is broken with our existing revenue model here. Yeah. And I would 200% agree with you. You made me think of a time earlier in my career and I won't tell what organization it was, but I instinctively knew because, you know, I came from healthcare sales where we were trained very thoroughly on selling is that those transition points are sometimes the most critical points because people have developed a relationship with you. They've developed trust in you and you have to somehow transfer that to the next stage. And so we had a customer success person I was working with. And, you know, when we, when I closed the deal, I, you know, I said, Hey, for the first couple of calls, I want to get on with you to make sure, you know, I answer any questions. And she just kind of looked at me like, why are you on the call? I go, because they know me, they don't know you. And I have to transfer my confidence and trust into you. And she just looked at I me mean, and it wasn't because she didn't get it. It's just, it was such a foreign idea to her. And I'm thinking like, I'm not going to lose this deal because of you. <laughs> like, exactly. like I've done a lot of work and I want to make sure that this is transitioned over and that they continue to renew. And so I would even get on the renewal calls with them because I'm the person that originally sold the deal. So well, I'm sorry to interrupt because there's something that most reps don't understand about that scenario is yes, it takes some extra time, but by staying with that relationship, <clears throat> you earn the right to go back and get some referrals if it goes well. You know what I mean? So the, the fastest way, like the easiest thing that most reps don't do is ask for referrals because they don't feel like they've really earned it because most of the time they're in that transactional mindset. Okay, I got it closed. See you later. I got to go find another one. But if you stick with that client, even if it's not your responsibility for the upsell, even if you don't get credit for the upsell or the renewal, by maintaining that relationship, A, you're putting your customer success person in a much better position to be successful. And B, you're staying with the client so you can earn the right after three, four, five months of them getting the value out of your service to go back to them and say, hey, how's things going? You know, I'm still here. I'm still part of the relationship. Anybody else you know, and they're going to be way more open to giving you those than if you just say, hey, thanks for the business. See you later. And then try to reach back to them six months later and be like, oh, so, you know, got anything you can send me? Do you think a lot of organizations have shifted away from the old school relationship selling of just building relationships and keeping relationships? Yeah, I think they've shifted away, but I think that, you know, and it's dependent on, upon what you sell and, yeah, you know, obviously. the virtual world has pretty much ruined the true old school relationship, but there are still some industries that rely on that, you know, a hundred percent. So I think what's changed drastically though, is what value means in a relationship. So for instance, value used to be golf, drinks, steak dinners, whatever, because that was cool. That was fun. But I just think now with, with time being the most valuable asset to me, a relationship 
is if you can bring value to me, that's how you develop a relationship. And value isn't taking me out to a steak dinner anymore because I'd much rather be home with my family and with my daughter than with you, right? Four hours on a golf course. Are you out of your mind right now? <laughs> like, I don't have that. I mean, I'm sorry. I know some people love golf and, and for certain people, golf is value, right? I'm taking you out to golf. That's a, but for somebody, it's not a blanket statement anymore. It used to just be a blanket thing. Hey, let's get together. Hey, let's grab lunch. Hey, let's go out and golf because you're trying to develop that rapport and that relationship and people were kind of used to that. Now, if I don't see value in this relationship, even if you're a friend of mine, Jeff, you know, then I'm going to go develop a relationship with somebody who can give me value. And that's the same thing with my friendships right now, by the way. I don't know about you, but over the past two years specifically, I've been start taking a deep dive into who adds value to my life and who doesn't. And more importantly, who brings drama to my life and who takes away value, right? And I have systematically been carving those people out of my life. And I mean, friends, good ones, family, you know what I mean? Like people who are like suck value away from me or take energy away from me. I'm avoiding them at all costs. I only want to be around people who give me energy, who add value to my life. And I don't mean like money and whatever it is. I mean, like personal value of just like a good conversation, getting me to think differently, having fun and not being so dramatic. That's adding value to me these days. And so I think value shifted about relationships, not necessarily relationships are out the door. Yeah, no, I love this idea of value, slightly off topic, but I want to keep on this one because I agree with you. I have definitely seen an increase in people reevaluating their relationships and where they spend their time. I think that COVID really, for a lot of people, really helped us rethink about like life is short. And that I'm not going to continue to have dysfunctional relationships that suck my time, energy, emotion, don't allow me to be the best me and live my best life. And, you know, I've seen that in my friends groups. I've seen it in social media. And so to your point, I think historically we, we, we say value and you think money, you think things, but value means something different for everybody. In a professional sense, I think you have to define what value is to your customer? Because it could be, can you help me save money? It could be, can you make me good look, look good in front of my peers? It could be, can you help us think through this? Because we really don't understand how to even think about this problem. I think you have to figure out what value is and not assume that you know. Because that a lot of times you're like, I've been doing all this stuff. I've been adding value, but it's not resonating. I was like, well, did you ask them what value is to them? Yeah. Did you say that was even valuable? I'll give you a quick example on that personally. Like my mom, right? So she's about to be 80 years old. And for years I would get her get gifts. So I'm a big gift giver, right? And I put a lot of thought into gifts. And so, you know, when I'm traveling or something like that, I'm always, I got friends and family in the back of my head. I'm like, oh man, they would love this. And there's a cool little story to it and whatever. Right. So I'd always send her these like really thoughtful gifts. But I'm not a card guy, okay? It's like writing a card. Like I, when you send me a card, I open it up, I, read, I throw it in the trash. And I really don't really even care. I mean, unless you write like a really, really thoughtful note in the card, then I'll appreciate that. But if you just send me a birthday, I, I could care less. Now, on the other hand, my mom loves cards. Like she doesn't need things, right? She's 80 years old. She's lived a great life and all this other stuff. So one day or one year, my mom, my sister, and my dad, I would send them all gifts and every and every time I would get on the phone with them and talk to them. Hey, birthday, you know, hour, two hours talking to them on their birthday. And after like the third birthday, my mom calls me up and she's like, is everything okay? And I said, 
yeah, well, why do you ask? She's like, well, you know, you're usually so thoughtful with your cards and you didn't really, you didn't send your dad one this year. You didn't send Nancy one this year. And I'm like, ma, I'm like, didn't you get my gift? Didn't, didn't we spend two hours? Didn't I spend two hours on the phone with all of you every uh, on your birthdays? And she's like, well, yeah, but you know, it's just, you know, it's so thoughtful when you write that card. And what I realized was my definition of value was the gift, the thoughtful gift, the two hours on the phone. And to my mom, she could care less about the gift. She just wanted a nice little note from her son saying that he loved her because she doesn't need any more material things in her life. So I'm sitting there thinking I'm adding crazy value because every one of these gifts is so thoughtful. And in her head, she's like, I don't want any of this. I just want a note from my son. I just want him to tell me like, I love, you know, have a nice thoughtful card. And I'm like, damn, you know, like, like, first of all, I could have saved a whole bunch of money. Over <laughs> right. <here>. right? <laughs> but second of all, like, dad, you know, I, I got to take my head out of my own ass here. And to your point, what we think is valuable has nothing to do with what the client does. So that's why we got to figure that out and, and focus in on that. Sometimes they, that's when we do demos for clients, for instance, we go through every single aspect of our solution, of our product, of our service, thinking all of it's valuable and 90% of it, they're probably looking at going, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. Ooh, there's something I care about. And we brush right by it. Yeah. You know, you also made me think about one of my first, and I probably shouldn't tell this, but I'm going to tell it anyway. One of my first uh, rejections when I was in sales, so new seller, you know, I was, I came from healthcare sales and I had this position and I don't know why I did this, but I took my manager, my district manager into a call with me. This is the first time I'd actually call this position. And, you know, and I, you know, we go through like robust training and like clinical training, all that sort of stuff. I get there and I do the show up, show up, what is it? Show up and spit up? Show up and throw up. Yeah. Right. Show up and throw up. And he kicked me out of the office. He's like, get out. I don't want to ever see you again. <laughs> you have no idea what I need. Da, da, da. And this is in front of my manager. And I was like, I'm totally getting fired. And to my manager's credit, we got outside, we got back in the car and he was like, well, how do you think that went? I was like, it's terrible. And I wasn't expecting that. And he's like, well, he said, relax. He goes, what did you learn? And I really was so like emotional in that, like just fearful state of like, I'm going to get fired. Like I didn't know what was going on. He's like, here's what you learned. You need to start asking questions about what's important to him first and learn the office, learn what's important to his business before you start just spitting out facts. Because what happened was you can tell he is a relationship guy and he wants to get to know you before you talk about product. And it just never dawned on me because I was so focused on, I have to get all this information I know and I have to give it to you. And then you're supposed to be like, oh my God, you're amazing. And then buy my stuff. And that's how it's supposed to work. And it's not. So what it taught me in that moment, and, and while it's obviously still traumatic because I'm still talking about it, it taught me to stop and ask, what is important to you? What do you value? How can I help you first? And it actually helps us both waste less time because then I'm not talking about stuff you don't care about. That's the problem with onboarding. Our onboarding is broken because that's exactly what we do to sales reps. We bring them in. We stuff them full of product knowledge. We give them very, you know, we give them a couple of scripts and some templates and we say, here you go. Good luck. Here's your territory. Have fun. So all we really have to rely on is our pitch that we got badged for in boot camp because I, you know what I mean? I got my little five star gold star there thing. So when I'm going and meeting with people, that's all I have. So that's all I'm going to do. I'm going to give you my pitch because I've memorized and I, and I got my badge. And so that tells me I'm good at this. But then you realize that nobody cares at all about 
what you've memorized. Nobody cares at all about all the features and functions and speeds and feeds. And they really just want to help, you know, figure out a problem that they, you know, help you solve a problem that they have. And if you can't figure out what that actual problem is and then tailor your conversation to how you can address that problem, I'm going to kick you out of my office or I'm going to do even worse. And I'm going to say, thanks so much for coming in, Jeff. I need a little time to digest what you just told me right there. Why don't we circle back in a couple of weeks and we'll take it from there. Does that sound fair? And that is the politest way on the planet of telling you, you are worthless and your pitch was terrible. And I have zero interest in what you are talking about right now. Thank you very much. And feel free to touch base and check in with me 75 times for the next three months. And I'm just going to play your voicemails to my team and make fun of you. Yeah. I think for me, when I was a seller in the field, my business took off when I learned to ask really good, thoughtful questions which was frustrating because I'm like, I literally had you know, all of this stuff, like, you know, clinical and data and da, 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 da. And I, in the minute I started shutting up and asking questions is when things changed. I call it catching your sales groove. There's a moment in everybody's career, in every sales rep's career, where they wake up one day and it's just a little bit easier than it was the day before. You don't really know when it was but or what happened, but it's the day you stop pitching your solutions and you start having conversations about your solutions. You know, you start caring more about what the client needs than you do about your commission check. And oddly enough, at that moment, your commission check starts going through the roof. And there's a beautiful example of this, which is one of my favorite sales movies. You know, people talk about sales movies, right? They say, oh, what's your favorite sales? Well, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, Wolf of Wall Street, Boiler Room. Wrong, 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 wrong. The worst sales movies I've ever seen in my life. They're, they're great movies. Right, Don't get me right. wrong. They're fun, awesome movies, but they are horrible sales movies. They are literally everything that's wrong about selling. The greatest sales movie of all time, in my opinion, is Tommy Boy. Oh. And Tommy Boy, there's a scene in Tommy Boy where Tommy catches his sales groove, and it's the most pure thing you'll ever watch. So if anybody hasn't seen Tommy Boy in a while, go back and watch it again and put your sales lens on. There's a moat, right? When he sits in the uh, the diner and he's like, Helen, you look like a Helen. Let me tell you why I suck as a salesman. So we'll send him to some guy's office. Say he's interested in buying something from me. Well, I got to go excited. I'm like, Jojo, the idiot circus boy, the pretty new pet. And he goes through this whole thing. And she's like, wow, you're twisted. You know what? I'll go fire up those wings for you and you know, turn them on. He's like, oh, Tommy likey, Tommy want wingy, right? In that moment, he caught his sales groove. Because up until that point in the movie, he was trying to be his dad. You just stick your head up a butcher's ass, but no, I, that's not the right thing. And he was just trying too hard. He was pitching. He was giving all the specs and all that other stuff. In that pure moment where he was like, Helen, you look like a Helen, he was just being himself. He was relating to the person. He was self-deprecating. And he, he had confidence in himself. And that moment after that, he goes and saves the town and everything else. But that is the essence of when you stop trying so hard, it's odd, right? When you stop trying so hard and you start caring more about them than your commission check, it's amazing what happens. And how do you coach salespeople to get through that? Because you do, has to be an evolution, right? Because you, you have to learn product. You have to go through all that stuff. How do you coach to that? It's tough because you almost have to reverse engineer. A lot of sales reps, because they've been so ingrained in the pitch and they've been so, I've been on this hunt on my podcast to talk about like, you know, most people I bring on is I ask them, Hey, are you born curious or can you develop curiosity? Right. I think I'm on the side of you are born genuinely curious, right? I don't think, I, I think you can become curious, but I think you are born genuinely curious or you're not. And so with curiosity, what I've learned is 
you can't be curious until you care. Okay. Like Morgan, when he was, when he was working with me, I call it the give a shit factor. He came to me a while back and he said, you know, when he first started and he was like, we were developing cadences and sequences and stuff like that. And he was having pretty good results, but then they kind of plateaued and came to me after a while. I said, John, you know, I, I feel like I'm doing all the right things here, but I'm, I'm still not getting the results that I'd expect. Like what's, what, you know, what's going on? And I said, Morgan, I'm going to tell you something here. I go, your results aren't going to change until something does. And he says, what? And I said, until you start giving a shit. And he said, excuse me? I go, I, look, I know you care about your job. I know you care about working here and all that other stuff. But until you start genuinely, until you start genuinely caring about the person on the other end of that phone number or the other end of that email and thinking of them as an actual human being who has the same challenges you do every day that gets up, brushes their teeth, has challenges, deals with the economy, all that other stuff. Like until, and until you think of them that way, your results aren't going to change. And so once you care though, be amazing what happens because then you become curious. So for instance, the generic sales rep is going to walk in and say, Jeff, tell me about your priorities. What keeps you up at night, Jeff? How can I be of service to you? Right. And, uh, and you're going to give generic answers to that and you're not going to really develop, you know, give them much insights or whatever it is. But the average rep or the above average rep is going to do some prep for my meeting with Jeff. And I'm going to look at your website. I'm going to look at your LinkedIn profile. I'm going to look at some of your background and history and what's going on with your company. And I'm going to read a few, you know, maybe job descriptions of people like you and what you're being held accountable for and those type of things. And when I get into a conversation, I'm going to be like, hey, Jeff, you know, as I was preparing for this meeting, you know, I was looking through your background, man. And one of the things that really struck me was, boom, whatever the hell it is. Or I was noticing that your company just did this thing. And I'm really curious, like, how is that impacting your day-to-day -day life and what that means? And what are you being held accountable? And how has that shifted your part? Because now with a little bit of knowledge, not everything, a little bit. That's why I believe sales reps do not have to be the industry experts in anything, actually. They just need to know enough to be able to get the conversation going and then dig and dig and dig and dig and layer and layer and layer those questions to be curious. Because when somebody can tell that you care and when somebody can tell that you're genuinely curious about whatever their challenges are or whatever it is, you'd be amazed at what people open up to. But it's that care factor that some reps get too faster than others. Today's modern B2B sales leader, uh, we know that sales has changed. A lot of that is driven by digital transformation, in the fact that buyers have unlimited, nearly unlimited access to information, people, resources. What have you seen be the top things that sales leaders need to be thinking about in changing their approach to their go-to-market strategy or their sales approach as opposed to 5, 10, 15 years ago? A, I think they need to switch drastically from quantity to quality and stop with the numbers. You know, it, it made me cringe when COVID hit because what I saw was when COVID hit and everybody went home and pipelines dried up, that a lot of executives and leaders doubled down on the activity for these SDRs. And they said, okay, you know, instead of making 50 dials, you got to make a hundred dials because the pipeline's empty. Go, 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 go. And I'm like, oh my God, that's the absolute exact opposite thing of, that you should do. I mean, think about it. In a good economy, executives don't want to talk to 22 year old kids who don't, who are just going to ask them a bunch of bank questions and flip them over. Right? Like that's in a good economy. In a bad economy, come on, not a shot in hell as an executive. Do I want to talk to some kid who's going to give me some generic elevator pitch and ask me some basic bant questions, add no value to my life, right? So they were beating these poor kids up and it was actually getting exponentially worse because now 
you're telling them to do twice as much and they're still not getting the results. So you're demoralizing them across the board and job satisfaction is pretty miserable in that scenario as well. So A, I think we should back up and tell the VCs specifically in the SaaS world to slow them down and lay off because I don't need that downward pressure. That's why for me, I've never taken money from a VC because I never wanted that level of pressure to grow at all costs. So you, you can get your 10 X multiplier within two years. Like it makes me sick to watch that money get dumped into our space and then pushed down on reps all the way down to the floor who really have no control at the end of the day of how fast they can grow it, except for the numbers game. So I think that is something I would stop and I would, I would reassess and I would relook at your ideal customer profile and really hone in on the tier, like the really quality accounts that you can go after and add value to and not just run a general list and zoom info of companies between 10 and 10,000 employees and put it in their database and tell them to go. I think they should focus on more on business acumen than sales tactics, techniques, or product knowledge and help these reps understand how to have a conversation at a business level, what it means to, you know, have a PL. I mean, most sales reps have no clue of how to talk finance to a CFO. Mind you, every deal right now is going through the CFO and being scrutinized at the higher level. So these kids who come out of college with some psychology degree or, you know, liberal arts degree or whatever it is, who have never really taken finance are now selling. Okay, great. I get my pitch here. But then they have to go have, have a conversation with a CFO and they will get annihilated by anybody who knows what they're talking about on that side of the house, discounting whatever it is. And then they'll discount the hell out of it just to get the deal and it'll be unprofitable and it'll be a bad customer that won't renew or you have to do something else with so it's a nightmare all the way through i like the fact you hit on quantity and quality it actually is a question that i very often for both sales and marketing leaders if i'm a marketing leader that is convinced that we want to back off of our quantity targets right and a lot of this is being driven by the ceo and senior leadership so let's start there if you want sales and marketing to align and i will say it right now the ceo has to have incentives in place in order for them to work together it starts at the CEO level. I'm glad you agree with me. So let's start there. Let's get that out of the way. And we can talk about, you know, variable comp on the on the marketing side and that the fact that they should have, in my opinion, I think you would agree with me on this one, their goals related to revenue target of some sort, pipeline, whatever it should be. Yeah, I could care less about MQLs, by the way. I really could care less. Like, do those MQLs actually turn into <laughs> actual revenue? Like SQL, MQL, good for you. Come up with another acronym. Are, is it going to lead to revenue? That's what I care about. So there we go. So now we know sales leaders don't care about MQLs. So if I'm convinced, okay, great. We're on the same page. I'm going to focus on quality. How do I get a traditional sales leader out of the mindset that you're actually going to reduce the quantity or volume of leads and that we are going to not be able to hit our targets? Because the the what I hear from marketing leaders is like, I try to focus on quality, but when the sales leader recognizes that we went from, I'm making up numbers, right? 10,000 leads to 7,000, they freak out. Well, first of all, if sales leaders are relying on marketing leaders to fill their pipeline, then they should be fired in my opinion. So same thing with an AE. I'm sorry, I'm going to say it. If you were an AE on my team and you came into my office and you missed your quarter target, and the reason, and I asked you why you missed your quarter target, and the reason was because marketing or the SDRs didn't give me an, enough leads, before that sentence got out your mouth, I would fire you. 
I would be like, first of all, I don't understand anybody who wants to rely on somebody else for their success. I just don't understand that mentality in any way, shape or form. Whatever marketing gives me, whatever my SDR gives me, that's icing on the cake, but I'm going to go take care of it. So for a VP of sales, sit there and say, oh my God, where's market, where are the leads from marketing? Unless that is your strategy, period. Unless you are not outbound and your entire strategy is PLG and marketing and that type of thing. And that is your fundamental strategy. Okay. That's a different story. But if you're like the other 90% of organizations where there's inbound and there's outbound and all that other stuff, then let's put that where that comment there, right? I fundamentally believe that's an excuse coming from a VP of sales who's lazy and doesn't want to teach their team how to go out and make their own, you know, make their own bed. That said, that you're not going to convince them of anything until they see data. And even with data, they might not be convinced. But I think that what you need to, what you probably should do, and this is what I recommend to reps too, is a lot of reps are being told make $50 a day, make $100 a day, whatever it is. And they're, they're like, oh, this is the worst. I don't want to do this. this is, I, I want to focus on quality. Well, look, you're not going to convince, like, don't you dare go to your boss and say, I don't want to make, I think it's ridiculous to make $100 a day. I don't think I want to do it this way. They're going to tell you either get bent you know, or get fired, right? So what you do is you almost create a little side hustle where you do it their way, but you get absolutely maniacal at, at tracking, right? So you track their way and you, and you track it at, at the deepest level you can possibly track as far as conversion ratios, numbers, and all that other stuff. And then you do it your way. You do a little side hustle where you pick 10, 15, 20, 30 accounts that you're going to go deep on. You're going to do research on. You're going to reach out with a very thoughtful, personalized cadence to or something like that. And you run those, those, that split test over the course of about a month. And then you come back with data to your boss and you say, Hey boss, I've done it your way. And this was what the conversion ratios and the results are and all that stuff and whatever. I did it my way kind of on the side here. It was after hours and heaven forbid we asked people to work past five o'clock today, but I'm saying you should from five to six o'clock every day. I picked two accounts that I wanted to go into, got really deep with them. And my conversion ratio was really high and I actually enjoyed it more. And so which one would you rather me do? If your boss says, screw your way, I, let's, I still want you, then go find another job. And it's the same thing with marketing and sales. If I was a marketer, I would say, you know what? Let's section this out. Let's not take it from 10,000 to 7,000. Let's give you your 10,000. We're just going to light that up. But over here, we're going to take a smaller team and we're going to run these higher quality campaigns. And we're just going to focus on this. And we're going to see how, that, how those conversion ratios work. And in the over the course of the next quarter, month, two months, whatever you can judge, you know, as far as a good split test level is, we're going to come back with some data and we'll prove it one way or the other. So it's not about who's right or wrong right now. Everything here at Sell Better by JB Sales is an experiment, for instance. We, there's no more strategy for us. Like, think about it. Like, strategy? It's like, okay, go ahead. Put your 2020... Jeff, walk me through your 2023 strategy with all the variables that could happen. Do you have any idea what's going to happen in the marketplace right now? Did you know what crypto was going to do last week? Did you know what Elon was going to do? Did you know what's happening in Ukraine? Do you know what's happening with all the VC? No, none of us have a clue what is going to happen in the next three to six months. And I mean that very specifically. So... Why put together a long-term strategy when it's going to change almost guaranteed? So for us, everything's an experiment. And so we put a hypothesis in place. Obviously, we have our goals, right, of what we're trying to accomplish. But then everything, you put a hypothesis in place, you put some resources together, you learn how you're going to track it, and you go. And you fail fast. 
and you just go. And if you create that type of environment where it's not who's right or who's wrong, and that's the problem with sales and marketing. We're right. We're right. No, you're wrong. We're just shut up. No, 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 none of you are right. None of you have any idea what's working and what's not in this market. So let's test it. But that takes, it takes accountability. It takes agility and it takes a sense of collaboration between the two. So again, it goes back to, if you're not working together, it doesn't matter who's right. It's not going to work. So you said something that I think is really interesting. I want to look at the reverse of that situation. What do you say to sales leaders? Very much like you said, is I don't want any excuses. I'm going to completely ignore marketing and not work with them in order to get better inbound. What would you say to that sales leader? Because I've heard that as well. It's like, we don't rely on marketing. We don't want to work with them. We don't care. This is all a team sport. Like if you're on the same team, you're on the same team. And I don't mean, you know, sales and marketing. Like if you don't have the mentality of we are in this together as an organization, you're destined to fail. So with that mentality alone, I think that sales leader is destined to fail because they might succeed for a quarter or two. But the problem is, is now I'm a CRO. So you're a sales leader, Jeff, and you say, screw marketing. I'm going to, I'm going to run on this, but I'm your CRO, right? And you crush it out. You crush it Q1 because you did it. You figured out whatever that thing was on your end, right? There's no other part. Like it's, it's like the AE. It's like, you want to be the artist in sales. You want to, you don't want to play with the team here. You don't want to work together. Like you want to be Al Pacino in Glenn Glenn Ross and never be in the office. Okay, cool. You just better hit your damn number every single month because the month you don't hit it or the quarter you don't hit it, if you're an artist and I got nothing to look at to know how to coach you to see why you missed it or anything like that, my only recourse is to fire you. But if you're a scientist and you can explain to me, John, here's my process. Here's what I did. I tried these different approaches and you know, I went after here, but I missed it. And that's why I missed my target. And this is what my plan is for next quarter. So I don't miss it. You're on my team all day long, man. You're on my team all day long. So in keeping that theme about transforming the, the B2B sales approach, let's talk about technology, specifically AI, because I think AI is offering some really unique opportunities. How are you seeing AI influenced sales and or change the sales game altogether. Macro it out, I think 80% of this world are sheep and 20% aren't. Same thing with sales reps. I think 80% of sales reps are sheep. They go through the motions, they push buttons, they don't think about what they're doing and they're getting replaced. Like we are teaching the technology, like it's almost like back in the day where we were like uh, on the manufacturing line and people were like pushing, you know, making widgets and they're like, oh man, I'm the best widget maker I've in the world. Like no widget's ever going to be able to good be as, you know, no, no machine's ever going to be able to make these widgets as good as me. And what did we do? We taught the machine. It's all, it's like hidden figures. Remember the movie Hidden Figures? Remember when the computer came in, but the, the women were the computers, right? And then this IBM computer came in and that one woman the leader, she realized that's going to replace us. That eventually will do these computations better, faster, and more than we ever will. So instead of trying to fight it and get better, she learned how to leverage it. She learned how to work it. She learned how to manage it and maintain it. And she transferred that skill. And it's, that's the same way right now. I'm, 2017, I got hit with an email. Like this training, when I took it back 15 years ago, it was called Basho. And, and there was this one email called the Why You, Why You Now email, which was all about like personalization, right? So it was about going to somebody's own website and doing some research, finding a trigger, firing off to the CEO. And look, 15 years ago, if you did that right, you were getting a 20, 30, 40% response rate if you did it right. I mean, I got Mark Hurd, I got Mark Benioff. I got people responding to me like you would never believe, okay? 2017, I had a group that left Salesforce and developed an AI bot that wrote emails based on my methodology, and they were better than I could write. 
And that was in 2017. Now, every tool out there, every single tool out there that I'm seeing is coming up with some AI-assisted writing tool. There's Lavender, there's Sixth Sense, there's Lead IQ, there's Zoom Info, there's Crystal Nose, and they all are contextual, go out and find some personalization and make it relevant. And all you maybe have to do is check a couple of things to make sure that you know it reads right and then send it out there. There's another tool out there I forget what the name of it is, but as far as demos and presentations, I can literally, it's like synthesis or something like that, where I can go on the website and you can choose a black man, a white woman, an Asian uh, man, you know, whatever it is. It's not an avatar. It's an actual person. And I can type in the back. It is deep fake, but at a level that is so good that tonality and all sorts of things come through. So I could like, for instance, I've got all my training, right? It's all, I go in a studio, I sit behind a camera, I read the scripts and all that other stuff, right? I don't have to do that anymore. And by the way, I'm a bald ass white man. I'm like a, I'm a middle-aged white guy. So who the hell wants to see a middle-aged white guy doing a bunch of trainings anymore? So what do I do? I can diversify my entire portfolio right now. I can take all that stuff that I've scripted out for my trainings. And then again, pick a black man, Asian woman, and that type of stuff and diversify everything. And it'll look exactly like they are saying it, not me. So all this artificial intelligence. Back in 2017, when I got that email, I was freaking out. Honestly, I was like, okay, we're screwed. Like, that's it. Sales reps were, were kind of done. And I don't know, you're familiar with obviously Gary Vaynerchuk. So I went to Gary V. He had a 4D session where you pay, you pay 10 grand and you go to his office and like you and 15 entrepreneurs sit down with all his leaders. And then at the end, he comes in and does a Q&A with you. And so it got to me, Gary, I just saw this email that is like written better than I could from, a, from an artificial intelligence standpoint. It's like, where does that leave us as sales professionals? And he said, don't worry about the technology. He goes, you're not going to beat it. He goes, learn to leverage it. Be the last mile. And that's the mentality I want sales reps to think about is be the last mile. Let the technology do all the heavy lifting, right? Gather all the insights, gather all the intent data, gather all the information about the account, and maybe even write that email to a certain degree. But right before that email hits that inbox, right before you make that phone call, right before you give that demo, humanize it. Until computers buy from computers, look, when computers start buying from computers, we're screwed, okay? But as long as there is a human on the other end of that, then we have a chance. So then how should today's sellers be positioning themselves or what skill sets should they be working on in order to position themselves for the future? Because I, I love what you said, like you, and what, or I should say what Gary said, don't fight the technology, just position yourself differently. So if I'm a seller, or a sales leader, how do you coach these people to be that last mile? Again, I go back to business acumen. You know what I mean? Like, that's the thing. It's like what the tech doesn't have is the business acumen. The te tech doesn't have the empathy. The tech doesn't have the, the understanding of the person that, that's about to receive that. So like, here's an easy thing to do for your team. Say you sell, say you go after CIOs in healthcare, okay? I'm sure your marketing department has these pretty slicks that come up with CIOs in healthcare and how they care about innovation and digital transformation and 75,000 word, words on a paper that are two font that they have to memorize so they can get their badge. I'm sure every company has those. That is not how a sales rep should learn about CIOs in healthcare. You know how they should learn is go get some customers that you have right now on your book that are CIOs, CIOs in healthcare. 
set up a Zoom session and do a Q&A so the reps can actually ask the people who are living that role what a day in the life looks like. You know, what's a real, you know, I read, here's, I read your job description, but really what do you do? Help me understand what this looks like and some of the challenges that you face and things you're being held accountable for. That type of, con- like that real world conversation with executives will first of all demystify the, oh, I got to talk to a scary C-level executive because they're just like you and I. And I'll be learning things that I can actually use to say in real language, not marketing language, not about transparency and synergy and all the stupid words that they decide to use. Don't take our marketing words. Relax. Sorry, man. Like, (laughs) like, again, my background's marketing. I I love it. And that's what marketing is supposed to do. They're supposed to do that stuff. But when I say it, he doesn't like, there's a big difference between marketing messaging and sales messaging. Fine line, big difference, but most companies don't figure that out. But it's those sort of things that I, I continue to talk about you know, those opportunities to align sales and marketing and that most marketing teams are doing some sort of market research. They might be talking to CIOs to get their insights. Why are we not involving sales in that process, letting them be a part of that process? Because you regurgitating some report that you got as a result of that conversation, just have them be a part of the conversation because what is more important to a seller, in my opinion, is the language that the person uses how they speak about it, because I can translate that into conversations. When you make it to kind of like put together, I can't pull out those same insights. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, it's simple things like that. It doesn't have to be complicated. It just involves sales. So, And it's easy, by the way. It's very easy. You're already doing the work. So w- whether you do a live session Q&A type of thing, or you just record the conversation that you had with them and then send it to your sales team and say, this is what a real CIO in healthcare actually looks like, talks like, you know, that type of thing. Listen to that and then make some phone calls and see if you can find people like them. So to wrap up our conversation, we were having some some talks offline and you you mentioned the word bro culture which I didn't know people were still on this thing. But I said, I got to ask John about this before I get off this podcast. So before we close out, how do sales leaders build better? Yeah, bro culture is still alive and well, unfortunately. You know, again, I go back to Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, Wolf of Wall Street, Boiler Room. That's bro culture. It's middle-aged white guys, the belt, you know, hit the gong, and let's go, and let's rah, rah, let's go to the strip clubs, let's do a bunch of coke, and, you know, yeah, let's hit the numbers. Like, that's bro, yeah. right? And everybody knows it. Everybody's been a part of it. And one way, you know, at certain points in our careers, we've all been a part of some of those teams or known those people. And what that does is that alienates everybody who is not that person. And let, guess what? 95% of the sales pilot people are not really that type, or 95% of people who could be successful in sales are not that profile. I mean, me being like, yeah, what's up? Or even even the old adage, and don't get me wrong, I love athletes, okay? I love athletes. I think there's competitive niche. But for the mentality of, oh, you know, I only hire athletes, you're missing out on a massive opportunity to diversify your workforce. And there's too many statistics out there that talk about how diverse sales forces win more often than non-diverse ones because you can't get different opinions. The problem is, is I have a bias in the sense that I tend to hire people that look like me and are like me because it's a comfortable conversation. And I have to actually try for people who don't look like me or don't come from my background. I have to kind of be curious enough to understand that. Right. And it's so it's easy for me to just, you know, I write my job description. You know, you're going to crush your quota. And I mean, even just the words that we use in our job descriptions alienate people. I mean, a woman looking at a typical sales job description looks at it and says, no, thank you. I want nothing to do with crushing quota and, you know, destroying murdering this right. and doing that, like destroying that. Like I, I want no. So I'm not even going to apply to that. 
And if you're not coming from with different perspectives, you are missing out on a massive opportunity to excel, to learn, to grow, and also to relate to your audience, right? Because if you just have a whole bunch of middle-aged white guys doing sales and you're calling into all these other companies that are pretty goddamn diverse at this point, you're now, you're putting yourself behind again from a competitive standpoint. So it's not just a feel good thing, by the way, like this, what I want people to understand is being, having a diverse sales organization has nothing to do with just doing the right thing, right? Like that's fine. It has to do with making money. It has to do with results. It has to do with the fact that the data is undeniable that when you have a diverse organization, you succeed more and you hit target more often and you have more diverse, you know, and you have higher retention and all these other things. It's just undeniable. So for everybody out there, that's like, oh, you know, you know, diversity is. So for affirmative action, it's like, it's not because the law is telling me to do it. You know, it's not because it's, oh, you know, I, I want to make sure and I'm going to put my, you know, gay flag up during gay pride month and, and check off that box. Like, you know, those are the people, again, let's go back to the beginning of the conversation, going through the motions, doing things because they're supposed to do them. No, you start looking at things from a different perspective and you do things because you should be doing them, not because it's a good thing, because you want to win. And if you want to win, you got to, you, you better wake up as far as this bro culture crap, because you won't win. And it is really about diverse thought. So it's not just about race. It's about gender. It's about income, background, geography, all everybody brings a different perspective. And I actually have, and we'll close out on this one because I know you're a busy guy, but I actually had a, a client years ago and we were having a conversation and she's, she was a woman owned business. And she said she had vendors come in and they would, they would pitch her with all men. She said, I know you have women in your group, nobody. And she said she would just tell them, she's like, you have to bring some people that look like who we are and talk to us the way that we want to be talked to. And, and she was very adamant about it. So to your point, it's not about doing the right thing, which is great. It's about showing up and looking like your customers and having that same thought so you can connect with them. So it's about winning. It's about winning. It's about winning. If you want to win. And that's the way we're going in this conversation right? about winning. <laughs> so people that want to get in contact with you, Mr. Barros, how do they find you on social? How do they get connected with you and learn more about what you're doing? Can I actually, if you go to our website, sellbetter.xyz, you'll see all sorts of, you sign up for our newsletter. We got a daily show that we do. It's live daily content. We do a webinar every single day. You can also check out the YouTube channel where we give away a ton of free content. And that's again, YouTube slash sellbetter.xyz. And as far as me, you can always find me on LinkedIn, but unfortunately I can't accept any more invites. I've hit that stupid arbitrary 30,000 connection mark with half oh, a million so people. Oh, so sad for you. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it sounds like a humble brag, but it's just a, it's a wicked annoying thing because like I asked LinkedIn one time, I was like, why a 30,000 limit on connections? Like, We want to make sure your connections are meaningful. I'm like, me 30,000 meaningful connections? I'm like, are you out of your mind? I'm like, make it 10 then if that's the case. So anyways, but the best way to get it is uh, Instagram. So I do a ton of free consulting. I answer all questions on Instagram. So if you DM me, hit me up with a video. Hey, John, this is what I'm challenged with right now. I'll get right back to you. And that handle is John M as in Michael Barrows, B-A-R-R-O-W-S. Same thing on TikTok, same thing on Twitter, same thing with my personal website, johnmbarrows.com. And we'll have all those listed in the show notes too. For those that didn't get it, we'll make sure that people can get in contact with you. Well, John, I appreciate your time. It's always a wealth of information. And I think the sales leaders and others too, but sales leaders will definitely get different way of looking at the way that they're doing business in the modern B2B world. All right. You have a great weekend and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Rev Engine podcast. I hope today's episode provided you with some actionable insights that will help you begin the process of transforming your organization to a high performing 
revenue engine. If you found today's episode valuable, we ask that you support the show's growth in three ways. First, share the episode with your friends and colleagues. Second, follow me on social media at Meet Jeff Davis on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. And finally, give us feedback on who you'd like to see on the show next. That's all for this episode. We look forward to having you join us next time where we continue the conversation on how to build a high-performing revenue engine.